Paul is talking to people that live in a big city like Chicago. It wasn't quite as big as Chicago because, well, they weren't cities that big in the days of Paul. But it was a big city, the biggest that they had known. And people in that city, there were the rich and the poor, the educated and the illiterate. There was people with massive money and power. The most powerful, wealthy people in the world lived in Rome. And there were slaves that were treated like pieces of property, abused and sold on the market. Uh, there were some of the same things that we see today. There were bathhouses where you would go and have sex with men, women, or children in those days. It was a city in which every kind of pleasure, every kind of experience was available to anybody that had money to pay for it. And Paul is writing to these urbanites, these city people, and he's trying to explain to them the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of them were absolutely 100% living in lifestyles that were contrary to God as they heard this message. Some of them had barely even understood the things of God. Some of them were religious people that felt like, I'm religious, and because I'm religious, I'm okay before God. You'll hear the Apostle Paul talk about things like the wrath of God. But you'll also hear him talk about the love of God, uh, the powerful, compelling love of God. And so, as we look at Romans chapter 2, I want to talk to you today about why being religious cannot save you. Why being religious cannot save you, because that's the theme of what Paul is talking about. In Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul talks to people that he says, and some of you uh, were he, he lists all kinds of sin and malice and greed and idolatry and adultery and fornication and homosexuality and whatever kind of thing you're into. And he says, you guys understand and know that those things are to be repented of and turned away from. But some people were in there were saying, well, yeah, that's not me, though, because I'm a good person. Now, that doesn't apply to me. And so Paul now turns his attention to people that are religious people. Now, I don't know how, what you consider yourself today. Uh, I'm going to guess that a lot of you, in one way or another, were baptized when you were an infant or were dedicated in some church and that your parents took you on Christmas and Easter to some celebration. Some of you went to uh, religious schools when you were growing up, and some of you celebrated religious ceremonies. Many of you, uh, when you were married, got married in a religious institution, and some of you, a lot of you, have Bibles in your homes when you grew up, or you have crucifixes on your wall that you have had since you were a child. Uh, some of you had manger scenes at Christmas, and so there was a degree of religion in your life and in your house. And, 
as you think about the wrath of God or eternity or hell and heaven, you've comforted yourself often with the idea, but I'm religious. I have a cross in my house. I have a Bible on my, on my little desk beside my bed. And I go to church and I've done good religious things and I believe in God. And then there's this sense of, hey, because I'm religious, I'm not as bad as other people. Because I'm religious or I attend or have attended church at other times in my life, and you may say to me, Pastor, okay, I'm not a perfect person, of course, because after all, aren't we all human? But I'm a fairly good person. I believe in God and I try not to do wrong and I try to do good works and I'm not a mass serial killer. And then, and, and, you know, last week I walked a little old lady across the street. At Christmas times, I even sometimes give those annoying people with bells some money in their can. I mean, I'm that kind of individual. And I don't look for trouble, but if trouble comes to me, hey, I can defend myself, of course. And so many of us fall in that category of believing that because we're religious or because we're a decent, fairly good individual, that somehow we have been shielded from the wrath of God and that somehow we're okay with God because we have a degree of religion on our life. And so Paul addresses religious people now. And it's okay, this may feel much more like ouch than amen. How many of you know that sometimes it's like ouch? And so the apostle Paul talks to these religious people and I love what he says A few verses down, he says it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. It's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. But he starts out in verse 1 of chapter 2. And I want you to understand why being religious cannot save you. In Romans chapter 2 verse 1, he says, You therefore have no excuse. He's talking to religious people. He says, you therefore have no excuse. Uh, How many of you were good at making excuses when you were young about why you didn't get your homework done or why you couldn't go to school? And some of you carried into your adult life and when you go to your boss and you're late, boy, you have come up with some great, great excuses. I had a couple of my kids, I'm not gonna tell you which ones. Man, did they have good ones about why they couldn't go to school and why they didn't have their homework done. They would make elaborate, very convincing arguments, excuses about, I know I should, but I have a good excuse. And what Paul is saying to religious people is, hey, there's a lot of religious people that use religion as an excuse. Notice what he says, you therefore have no excuse You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge others, you are, he says, 
yourself because you have passed judgment, do the same things. Uh, first of all, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. It's God, God's kindness shows us that being a moral person is not enough to keep us from his judgment. The Apostle Paul tells us that there were religious people that were saying to Paul, hey, Paul, we're okay before you, but there's a lot of people that are a lot worse than I am. And he says, these religious people were pointing at other people and saying, they're bad, and I'm not like that, and I haven't done that, and I haven't done what that person did over there, and I'm a lot better than my neighbor beside me, and there's a lot of other people that have done a lot worse things than me. And Paul says to religious people, he says, you're pointing fingers at others. But notice what he says. You who pass judgment on someone else, for you are without excuse, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Uh, he says, you're looking at others and says, I'm not like that person. I'm not like that person. But he says, hold on a second. Even though you're religious and you may not do things that other people do, you still have broken the law of God yourself. Do you remember that story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14? He tells a story of a Pharisee, which was a religious person, and a tax collector. I love the fact that in the Bible, the tax collector is always the bad guy. I kind of like that for some reason. I don't know. I especially like it when I have to pay taxes. I'm like, yeah, tax collector. I don't know. Maybe some of you work for the IRS here. I nothing personal against you. It's just, it just feels good that the tax collector is the bad guy. But the tax collectors were bad guys in the days of Jesus because they were people that worked for the Romans. And the Romans were the oppressive people. It's like if a country invaded you, it's like if Russia overcame America and you became an agent for the Russians to collect money from American people. That's why they were considered so bad. And they usually cheated people and took from people stuff that wasn't their own. And they were considered the lowest, the dirtiest, the unscrupulous people, people that uh, had, were traitors to their own fellow countrymen, people that were full of greed. And so he says, one day a Pharisee and a tax collector, they enter into the temple together. And the Pharisee comes to the front of the temple and raises his hands to God, his God. And he says, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like one of those tax collectors and one of those sinners. I thank you that I'm not like those other people out there. Here I am before you, God. I thank you that I am righteous before you, not like those other people. And the tax collector, when he enters into the temple, into the church, he doesn't even dare come to the front because he's so full of guilt and shame and the sin that's on him that he stays in the back all the way in the back. And he humbles himself and he says, God, please have mercy on me because I have sinned and I have done so much to hurt you. And he acknowledges his sin. And then 
He ends up the parable in verse 14 and says, Jesus says, I tell you, this man rather than the other, the tax collector, other than the religious Pharisee, went home justified before God. Listen, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, it takes humility to admit that we have sin and that we are far from God. It takes a degree of brokenness to admit, I, I need God in my life, and I don't have it all together. It takes a degree of humility to say, I need my sins to be washed, I need to be cleansed, I have sinned against God Almighty. It takes a degree of humility to bow ourselves on our knee and cry out for the mercy of God. You see, the religious and the non-religious are equally condemned because the Bible condemns us both. You say, I don't murder, but yet Jesus said if you have hate in your heart towards someone, anger and hate in your heart towards someone, that you have become a murderer in your heart. You say, I don't commit adultery, but Jesus said, if as a man you look after a woman and lust after her in your own heart, then you have committed adultery in your heart. Uh, you say, I don't steal, but yet when you fail to give to those that are in need or fail to really give to the things of the kingdom of God or charity or those things that you know you're not sharing, in essence, you've stolen from God himself, as you don't open up your heart and give, you say, I don't do drugs. No, I'm not like one of those drug addicts. I don't snort cocaine. I don't go home and smoke pot. Yet your drug of choice is Baker Square silk pie, and you <laughs> overindulge and eat on that. But you see, you found a, 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 a drug of choice that, that, that is accepted in the religious Christian community, but you're still doing the same thing, filling a vacuum in your heart that only God should be able to fill. Verse 2 says, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. You see, if as a religious person you point to someone else and you say, hey, God says, what, what Paul is saying is the same, the same Bible that you use to condemn that person that's in sin is the same law, the same Bible that's condemning you as well. It's based on truth. Verse 3, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Paul is talking to religious people, and he's saying, do you think that you are good enough to escape the judgment of God? Do you think that because there's people that are worse than you, and you're pointing your finger at them and saying, I'm not like them, that that makes you able to escape God's judgment? You say, well, pastor, what, what is the judgment of God? Why do you talk about the judgment of God? I thought that God is a big, loving God that accepts everybody, and we all fail and fall and stumble, but isn't God like some big teddy bear in the heaven? 
a Santa Claus going, ho, 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 come my child, and hugging you and accepting you. No, 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 that's not God. Oh, God is loving. Oh, God is merciful. Oh, you'll never understand the compassion and the mercy and the goodness and how God reaches out. But the Bible also says that our God is a consuming fire. You cannot accept the goodness of God without understanding the judgment of God as well. You you, you haven't understood God if you don't understand the wrath of God along with the mercy of God. You see, God is a holy God. We cannot even come close to him without being consumed by his holiness. And here's what it says is religious people don't think that because you're religious that you will escape the judgment of God because even religious people experience the judgment of God. Verse 4 says, or do you show contempt for his riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? Hear me well. This is really important. I want you to hear this. You see, unless you really come to God, asking God for forgiveness and repentance and accepting the sacrifice that the only sacrifice that can cleanse you. If you think that you're good enough to be before God, if you think that your good works make you right before God, what you're doing, the Bible says, is you're showing contempt. That word contempt means disdain. It, It means that you are, it's a strong word that means Disdain. In other words, you're looking down at what God is offering. God is looking at anybody, everybody, even religious people, and saying, your religiousness and good morality cannot make you right before God. You need my forgiveness and my cleansing and the sacrifice that I offer. And when God offers it to you, you're looking at the hand of God and you're saying, I don't need that. God is throwing you a life jacket and you are showing disdain and contempt for it. It's almost though as God is saying, give me your hand, and you look at his hand and you say, no, I don't want that. Has someone ever disdained you? Have you ever experienced reaching out to someone and they turn their back on you because they don't want to have anything to do with you? Have you ever gotten to shake someone's hand and they look at you? I've had that happen to me before. It's an insult. It's like I'm offering you goodwill and you're insulting me like saying, I don't want anything to do with you. And what Paul says is that many times religious people, good moral people, they count their, on their good works and what they have done before God and God is offering them forgiveness through repentance and we look at the hand of God and we say God no I don't need that because I'm okay already before God and we show contempt disdain it says for his goodness which is his kindness towards us towards our past his forbearance which means it may be considered God's kindness in regards to our present sin and long-suffering may be considered God's kindness in regard to our future And he says, are you not realizing that it's God's kindness that leads us towards repentance? Listen, God doesn't drive you to repentance. He leads you to repentance. Do you know what repentance means? 
Repentance means that you're going down one road and that you are so drawn, so touched, so broken, so burdened that you decide, I can't go down this road any longer. I have to turn around and go down another road. That's repentance. It means to do a 180, to go in a different direction, to, to, to say no to the direction that you were going and go in a different total direction. What causes us to do that, to make a U-turn? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Uh, how does God's kindness lead to, re to repentance? It's God saying to you, you can't make it on your own. All of your good works are as dirty rags before me. Even your religious effort cannot make you right before me. So I've given you my son. He's shed his blood. I've offered you all that I can give you. Now you have to receive my gift. I love you. I'm calling upon you, offering my grace. It is his kindness over and over. Listen to me. Some of you are here and you have said no to God. For 35 years. You had a close encounter with death and you woke up one day and you said, hey God, this is a second chance. I'm going to really turn my life around. And it lasted a month and you're back to your same old ways. You went to the doctor and he said, hey, unless you change your lifestyle around, you may be dead. And so you woke up and said, whoa, I really need to turn around. You had your first baby and you said, thank you, God. If this baby's born well and healthy and whole, I will be a different man. And it lasted for a year and you're back to the same old ways of living. You found a good woman. And you said, I'm going to be a different man now. And that lasted six months and you're back to the same old man you were. God has reached out to you, given you one chance and a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance and chance after chance after chance. His kindness has been reaching out to you. His goodness has been reaching out to you. God has been giving you one opportunity after another and sometimes the wrath of God has been raised against you like he's not going to turn around. I might as well just let my wrath pour on him but the mercy of God triumphs over wrath and he's given you a another chance and yet still you've rejected God and what Paul says is it comes to an end one day it comes to a time when there are no more chances that the fifth chance doesn't always lead to a sixth chance it's the kindness of God. It leads to verse 5. You need to understand that the kindness of God, God's kindness shows us that our unrepentant heart will pile wrath against us. Look what it says in verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. Because of your stubbornness. You know what stubbornness is? Stubbornness is the unwillingness to change. A habit. Stubbornness is I'm not going to do that. Stubbornness is I refuse to. I resist. 
You can pull me, push me, but no, I'm not doing it. Sometimes we're like that little boy. I had a friend when I was growing up that he hated peaches. He just could not stand. And his parents were of the persuasion that if it's put before you, you eat it. So I saw him. He showed up at church and I said, hey, his name was Eddie. I said, how you doing, Eddie? And he said, I, I told his brother, what's wrong with your brother? How come he can't talk? He says he's got peaches in his mouth. I said, well, why does he have peach in his mouth, peaches in his mouth? He doesn't want to eat them. And my mom said he has to eat them, so he's refusing to eat peaches. So for the whole service and after service, when he left, he still had peaches in his mouth. It was that stubborn, no, I'm not going to do it. That, that stubbornness, that stubbornness of heart. Listen, there are some of you here that you've been attending, you've been hanging out, you're on, you're on the fringe. <coughs> you have family that comes, maybe kids that come, a wife that comes, and you think it's good to have some morality, some religiousness in your life and in your family, but you have stubbornly refused and resisted month after month, year after year, you have refused giving your life to Jesus Christ. You have crossed your arms and said, I will not say yes to God. I refuse to go to an altar. I refuse to bow my knee. I refuse to break. I refuse to get baptized. I refuse to take that step. And year after year, you've resisted God. And year after year, you've said no to God. And you think that it's okay that maybe one day your moment will come, that maybe one day that day will come that you'll finally say yes to God. And here's what Paul says. Paul says, because your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, that means a heart that's unwilling to turn around, you are storing, that word is heaping up, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. He says every time you say no, a little bit more wrath gets put on it. Every time you resist and Say no to God. And every time people call you and you feel the compelling power of God and you say no, no, I'm not going to, no, maybe later, no, maybe at another time, there's a little bit more wrath of God piled onto your pile. It's like this pile keeps heaping higher and higher and higher. What is a pile of? Listen, it's a pile of the wrath of God. What is wrath? Wrath is well, the Bible talks about the wrath of God is something that you don't want to experience. The wrath of God is something you don't want to live under. It's a righteous wrath of God. It's the wrath that is unleashed upon all those that deny his name and, and are, refuse to repent and follow his ways. It's a just wrath. You say, well, pastor, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it would be that bad. I think that I do some good things. I, I'm not sure I'm that lost. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says, All of us have become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous acts are as filthy rags. We are shriveled up like a leaf, and the wind 
Our sins sweep us away. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For we have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12 says, As it is written, There is no one that is righteous, not even one. There is no one that understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. He tells us at the end of verse 8 that for those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Some Bibles say indignation. That comes from the idea of boiling up. And wrath comes from the idea of swelling, which eventually burst. Picture a volcano. A volcano is stirring up, is stirring up. It's holding back as far as it can. But it gets hotter and hotter and hotter until eventually it explodes. That's how the wrath of God eventually will be. And I want to tell you, listen, if you have not been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you have not said yes, if you have not surrendered to God, there is nothing that can shield you from the wrath of God. Nothing. Not a praying mother not a Bible on your bookshelf, not a cross that you wear around your neck, not a prayer that you may have prayed, not a baby baptism that you may have been part of when you were a child. There is nothing that can shield you from the wrath of God except the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing can. You say, Pastor, well, what does that look like? Listen, I believe it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, but I don't want you, oh, I don't want you to be unaware of his wrath. The last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, talks about what happens in the end. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, talking about God himself. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who has no beginning and has no end, the one who has always been the I Am, the great I Am, the God who is full of mercy, yet there is no spot or wrinkle within him. He's never sinned. He knows all things. He's omnipresent, this God of the universe that created all mankind, that's always been, will always be this God. It talks about him on a great white throne. And him who was seated on it. And it says, and the earth and the sky fled from his presence. And there was no place for them. It means all of creation. At this point in time, when God sat on his throne, it's the throne of judgment. And all of creation hides from this immense, powerful God. And there's no place to hide, it says. There's no place for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades, or hell, gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. 
If any man's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now for some, this is a very, very difficult passage to understand. The Bible says that there is a book and there are some who are, whose names are written in that book and others whose names are not written in that book. It's a book of life. And you say, well, pastor, I'm religious, I've been good, I've, I, I consider myself a person that believes in God. In James it says, even the demons believe. Even the devil, devil believes in God and trembles. Listen to me well, because I don't want anybody in this church, this, is, this has been my conviction. God so helped me that anybody at New Life Community Church can come to this church and not clearly, clearly, precisely understand the gospel of Jesus Christ presented. I want your decisions to be on your head, not on my hands. I want you to decide your destiny, not me. I don't want anybody ever, ever to be able to say, I went to new life and I didn't understand the gospel clearly. Pastor never explained it clear to me, clearly to me. I never understood it. I, I, I was there. God forbid. I don't want to be, I don't want to be ever standing before God and have to give account and be judged because the gospel wasn't clearly presented from this pulpit. But I want you to know very clearly, strongly, precisely, I want you to understand today that there is nothing that can shield you from the wrath of God, not even growing up religious. Because being religious doesn't make you right with God. It's having a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus, in which He has become your Savior, your Lord, come in your life through His Holy Spirit, forgiven your sin, and turn you around. That is the only way to God. There is no other way. There is no second way. There is no moral way. There is no good person that will stand before God at the day of judgment and say, God, I have been good. There is no one that will stand before God and say, God, I have been good, so would you let me into my kingdom? All our good works are as filthy rags. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that will make it before God. There is none that has been good enough. All, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wrath of God is destined to come upon us unless and only when The righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ is applied to our life. You see, Jesus paid the penalty and the price. You say, well, pastor, that sounds too easy. Are you telling me that I can live 35 years the way I've lived. In just a moment of time. And I can come to God and pray, repent, turn around, give my life and that I'm clean. Like there's no penitence I have to do. There's no making up for 35 years. 
I don't have to like go to Africa for three months and work with orphans. I don't have to crawl on my knees until they're bloody, bruised, and broken to some cross at a holy shrine. I don't have to pray 500 prayers of a certain kind. Are you telling me that there's no way that that I can't pay and make up? No, no, because if you try to, you condemn yourself more. This is a debt that you can't pay. It's like having a trillion dollar debt and you say, okay, God, I know I can't pay it all real fast, but I'm gonna start making $5 payments towards it. No, if you start paying towards it, you become a debtor of the whole thing. The only one that can forgive it, the only one that can forgive the debt that is upon you is when you humble yourself in brokenness. The kindness of God reaches out to you and you say, I can't pay the debt for my sin. It's too big, it's too great. There is nothing that I can do, God. You have been merciful to me time after time after time. You've given me chance after chance. Your wrath has heaped up against me, but God, today, I choose after so many chances, God, that no more will you have to call me because today I respond to you. Today I say yes to you. And I come to you, God, not as a perfect person, but as a sinner. And it's your kindness that's driven me over and over. It's your kindness that's brought me here today, God. It's your kindness that's giving me the power to come to you. So today I repent. The Bible says to receive that gift, you must repent, believe, and be baptized. It's very clear. And then in Acts chapter 2, it tells us what will happen. You will, you will receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The forgiveness of your sins comes when Jesus Christ washes your sins away. The gift of the Holy Spirit is what gives you the power to change. You see, it's God's Holy Spirit inside of you that changes you. And so in just a moment, I'm going to give an opportunity for those of you that have never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to come up to this place and say, today I'm receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. There are some of you here that have received Christ at one time or another, but you've dragged your feet when it comes to baptism. You just dragged your feet. And listen to me, if you don't have enough faith to be baptized, then I'm wondering if you really have enough faith to change and turn around because baptism is what a marriage ceremony is to a couple. It's publicly stating, I am committed now. In baptism, you go into the water, you come out of the water, and it shows what has been done.